Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal season. Welcome to the Dark Paranormal. It's good to be back hosting season two. And I sincerely want to thank each and every one of you for your support during season one. Season two is going to take a slight detour. As we discussed in the last season, this season will focus more on famous hauntings that you may already be aware of and more than likely will. However, we want to try and take a new slant on those hauntings. But before we get into today's show proper, a lot of you have asked how you can support the show. And I'm happy to announce we've now launched a Patreon for this podcast. If you search patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal, for the cost of one coffee per month, you can support the show and ensure that there are many future seasons of The Dark Paranormal. Dependent on the level of your support, you can gain early access to episodes, or indeed, access to the research used to collate each episode. So again, if you like the show and wish to ensure future episodes, visit patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. We also have a new email address if you wish to get in touch with the show. And remember, Season 3 will return to listener stories. If you've had a genuine paranormal experience that you wish to share with our listeners, or indeed for any comments or feedback, email thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com. With the announcements out of the way, I'm excited to bring you Episode 1 of Season 2 of the dark paranormal and I'll begin as we like to do with a question what is the most famous haunted house in the world a large majority of you will have said the house that features in today's episode I am of course talking about 112 Ocean Avenue better known worldwide as Amityville. In today's episode, we're going to hear a version of the events that allegedly took place to the Lutz family when they purchased the property in Long Island, New York. Next week's episode, we will look at the facts behind the case and see what, if anything, stands up to scrutiny. But for now, this is the Amityville story. I'm not sure what time it is. I I know it's not morning yet, 
because it's still dark outside. It must have taken a lot this time. I feel kind of fuzzy. I see you, just, in the corner, in the shadows. I should be scared, but I'm not. I can sense you're here to help. I try to focus on you, try to make out a face, but it's covered, like with a hood, like you're wearing a robe or something. You hold something out for me to take. I know what this is. You're talking without sound, like direct into my mind. I listen. You're right, of course. This is the only way. They are planning to get rid of me. I've heard them discussing it. Oh, yeah. The kids will be in on it, too. Yes. Okay. Yes, I understand the route. Go back to the corner now. I'll take it from here. Bigger and better. It's a key phrase of the West. We aspire to the big house, the nice neighbourhood, higher social standing. And we often stretch ourselves, physically, financially, emotionally, to attain that next rung on the ladder. George and Kathy were no different. They felt in all but finances, that they were ready to move up in the world. And so, when a house in an uptown area of Long Island became available, at a vastly reduced price, they decided this could be their chance to stretch to that next rung. You probably know this already, began the real estate lady, but... Thirteen months ago, there was a crime committed in this house. George and Kathy acted surprised, and it was an act. They had spoken in length about how comfortable they would be living in the house where just over a year ago, Ronald DeFeo Jr. had took a rifle at 3 a.m. and slowly walked around the house executing his mother, father, his 18-year-old sister Dawn, 13-year-old sister Alison, 12-year-old brother Mark, and his youngest brother, John, just nine years old. In a crime that shook America, police found all the victims laying face down in their beds. None of them had moved, despite the noise from each gunshot being found in later police tests to be audible from over three blocks away. There were no drugs in their system either. It's like they simply didn't hear the deafening, repeated shots. Neither did their neighbours on either side of the house. As if something cloaked 
the noise. How about the furniture? asked George, changing the topic. Is that in with the price? The realtor was taken back. Who in their right mind would want a murdered family's furniture to keep in the house that the murders took place? But money is money. You can keep the furniture as seen for an extra $400. Deal, said George. And on the 19th of December, 1975, George and Kathy Lutz and their three children, Daniel, age nine, Christopher, seven, and Missy, age five, oh, and their Labrador, Harry, moved into 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville. They would last only 28 days. Listen, said George as they unpacked the few boxes they had. I don't want to come across as superstitious, but a friend of mine was saying that, given its history, maybe we want to think about having the place, well, kind of blessed. What do you think? Kathy paused and shrugged. I, I wouldn't be against it. Kathy was a Catholic. A lapsed one, albeit, but a Catholic nonetheless. And in truth, she welcomed the idea. Yeah, why not, she said. Let's give the place a clean start. And so, George contacted a priest, a Father Ralph Pecoraro. Father Pecoraro lived locally at the Sacred Heart Rectory and, as luck would have it, had an opening that same afternoon. Father Pecoraro was an educated man, a lawyer, a fully trained psychotherapist. He had a reputation as a very grounded and rational man of the cloth. And house blessings were one of the things he enjoyed doing. Meeting newcomers to both the area and the parish. And, with the history of this particular house, he wanted to make the new family feel at ease. Hello, Father. I'm so glad you came, said George with a warm smile. Is there anything you need? Tea? Coffee? I'm sure we could find some in one of these boxes, George joked. A water would be fine, thank you, said the priest, as he set his small bag on the table, unzipping it and taking out his purple stole, kissing it and uttering a small prayer before placing it around his neck. He then reached in and removed a small vial of holy water. It's such a joy a nice young family have moved into this house. It stood empty for far too long. Well, we're happy to be here, said Cathy, handing Father Ralph a glass of water. Would you like me to take you on a small tour? asked Cathy. No, no, you're clearly busy unpacking. It's best you just leave me to my own devices. I'll go from room to room, and if there's anything I need, I'll be sure to let you know. And so, Father Ralph started the small ritual he had done countless times before. Sprinkling holy water, 
praying under his breath and making the sign of the cross with his hand cutting through the air. I'm sure you're going to be very happy here, smiled Father Ralph. Having completed the ground floor blessing, he moved up to the second floor. Father Ralph felt uneasy, like he was being watched. He brushed it off. He was a rational man. He knew the history of the place, and he knew that it was this knowledge that was making him feel off. Who wouldn't feel off with what took place here? Shrugging off this feeling, he headed to the first of the bedrooms and started uttering his blessing. He stopped. Someone was behind him. He spun around. They were behind him again. He spun back. There was no one here. Now it felt as though someone was stood both behind him and in front of him. But he could see nothing. His hearing slowly dampened, like someone either side of him had moved their faces slowly against both ears. He froze, rooted to the spot, with this feeling of being surrounded by something or Someone he couldn't see. Get out. It was an unearthly voice, bellowed in both ears at the same time. He managed to get to the doorway and onto the landing. Whatever it was had left him. He bent double, hands on his knees, shaking. Never before had he encountered something like this. What should he do? What should he say? For the first time since he was ordained as a priest, Father Pecoraro was unsure of his next steps. I'm sorry, I I must go, said Father Ralph through a forced smile as he panically stuffed his stolen water back into his bag. Muttering something about having another appointment, he hastily headed to the door. George asked if the father had finished or if he needed to return, hurrying to keep pace with the priest. I've done all I can here, he said. Hearing the panic in his voice, he steadied himself, forced a smile and thanked George for the water. George shut the door and shrugged at Cathy. Maybe he finished. Maybe, replied Cathy, though her face clearly suspected something else had taken place. For the first few nights the family had trouble sleeping, which is to be expected when you move into a new home. You need to get used to the creaks and groans of a living house, the expanding wood when it's warm, contracting materials when it gets cold. And this was December, the peak of a Long Island winter. I still haven't been able to contact Father Ralph, said Cathy as she plated up breakfast. I I keep thinking of how he looked when he left that day. He just had another appointment, said George. I imagine he was late for a christening or something. 
he continued as the kids sat round the table one by one. Missy was the last to arrive. She sat down and pulled out the empty chair next to her. My friend Jody would like breakfast too, she said, matter-of-factly. She'd never had an imaginary friend before. But Cathy knew this wasn't uncommon in children of Missy's age, so she played along. And who, may I ask, is Jody? said Cathy, putting a plate in front of the empty chair. She's an angel, replied Missy. I've drew a picture of her. Do you want to see? Missy passed Cathy a drawing of what looked like an animal. Surrounded by circles of what could have been Missy's attempts at people, or rocks. She's my best friend now, Missy nodded as she started on her cereal. Cathy gave a steely look to George, who responded with a nervous smile. Well, I hope she keeps your room tidy with you, joked George. That evening, George awoke with a start. He checked the clock on the bedside table. It was 3am and he could hear the banging downstairs. It sounded like the front door. He ran to the landing and turned the lights on. The front door was wide open. The winter wind blowing in a few small snowflakes into the hallway. George was convinced he locked that door. He developed a routine of checking each door and window was secure prior to heading to bed. Still, he must have missed this one. He went down to shut the door. Something caught his eye outside. The snow was very light, but the small dusting it had made seemed to be disturbed in the yard. He put a jacket on and walked over to check. There, in a circle were cloven hoofprints. Like a pig had been trotting around in a circle, but with no prints to or from this circle. Like it just appeared. He looked up to the house just in time to see a curtain drop back into place from the window which was behind Missy's bed. George, shouted Cathy from inside the doorway. It's freezing, come back inside. George woke the next day, tired and cold. I just can't get warm in this house, he said to Cathy. How are you finding it? Fine, said Cathy. Sure, it's cold of a night, but nothing being under the blankets doesn't fix. George figured maybe the furnace needed more wood, and so took an axe to the side of the house and began chopping logs. It was therapeutic for him, It allowed him to think straight. He had a ton of pressure on him, especially after this house move. $80,000 was no small amount to him. And although he was confident in the long run, they'd get a huge return on investment. Right now, as the bills stacked up, that thought was of little consolation to him. Let's have a quick break to talk to you about Policy Genius. Now, we all like to put off life insurance talk because it reminds us of our mortality. But life insurance isn't about death, it's about life. It's about ensuring the lives of those you love remain secure and comfortable. 
And I'm sure many of you will think, well, I'm covered through work or I'm covered through my bank accounts. But believe me, you want to check those finer details because you may be surprised what you're actually covered for. And this is exactly where Policy Genius come into their own. Yes, we could talk about how Policy Genius is America's leading online insurance marketplace or how their award-winning agents will walk you step by step through the entire process. But the best thing about Policy Genius for me is they don't have a dog in the fight. They're not going to strong arm you towards one company or another. They've no incentive to do so. Their only incentive is to listen to your needs, scour America's top companies, and find you the best price. For example, with Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that begin at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options even offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. There's a reason why Policy Genius has thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot, and you'll find out what it is when you tick life insurance off your to-do list with Policy Genius. So head over to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you can save. That's policygenius.com. George became more dishevelled. A lack of sleep, combined with the ongoing financial stress, meant how he looked outwardly was not one of his priorities. Kathy watched from the kitchen window. She was starting to see the signs of George's stress. His unkempt hair, his beard getting unruly. He, he reminded her of someone. Someone she couldn't quite pl- Her thought was interrupted by something dropping on the kitchen floor behind her. She turned round to see a plate, losing momentum as it spun round on the floor. Like a large porcelain coin its sound resonating faster and faster until coming to a dead stop. She stared at it for a second, trying to figure out what route it must have taken to land where it now lay. Thud. Another noise, this time from the hallway. Something landing on a carpet. She picked up the plate and reset it, and creeped into the hallway. A small wooden crucifix she had hung on the side wall was now in the middle of the hallway. Her heartbeat started to rise. Not simply because the cross had fallen. Things fall. Nails fail. But because she couldn't work out how it had landed here, some five feet from the wall. Father Pecoraro was unwell. Today was the first day since visiting the home of George and Kathy that he had been able to leave his bed. A fever had gripped him, leaving him bedridden and racked with pain. A fever he could handle. What troubled him more was the blisters. Blisters which formed on his hands and feet, almost in the areas of the supposed wounds of Christ, otherwise known as the stigmata. Stigmata was only for fanatics, he thought. People who believed they were so close to God that they themselves would spontaneously bleed like Christ bled. Father Ralph knew that 99% of the time these were self-inflicted wounds. The 1% were reserved for the likes of Padre Pio, the most famous sufferer of the stigmata who, due to his piousness, the church gave a touch more credence to. Father Pecoraro's rational mind 
was being hacked away at on an hourly basis. How long could he dismiss what he'd experienced in the house? Indeed, what he was experiencing now. He was in no position to rationalise what was going on. This was outside of his religious experience. He wondered exactly for who in the world this was part of their religious experience. Either way, one thing he did know for sure, he had to warn the Lutzes that something, something he truly didn't understand, was residing in their home. That night, George awoke with a start from his sleep. He knew what time it was before even looking at the clock. 3am, the clock blinked back at him. He was cold. No, freezing. He could see his breath in the room. The chill felt like it was biting at his bones, despite being under the covers and him placing extra logs in the furnace. Maybe, he thought, he could get warm if he sat next to the furnace itself for a while. And so, taking a woolen blanket from the wardrobe, he headed down to the basement. A chair was already positioned in front of the furnace. It wasn't there when he was last in here, but he was too cold to question it. He opened the furnace door, sat on the chair, wrapped himself in the blanket and pulled the chair closer. He stared into the flames, watching them dance and lick around the logs. It was hypnotising for him, he could slowly feel himself entering that state just before sleep where your mind and pre-dreams start to take over. His eyes half-closed with fatigue. The flames began to cause pareidolia, jumping into everyday shapes. A tree, a flag in the breeze, a face, a face with a beard. Without changing his gaze, in his peripheral vision, he thought he could make out a figure in the shadows, in the corner of the room. He knew this must just be his pre-dream state. A hooded figure, maybe, he thought, wearing a type of robe, holding out something in its hands. I'll get it, Cathy shouted, putting down her bedding as she walked towards the phone. Hello? A voice at the other end spoke. Kathy, it's Father Pecoraro. He sounded abrupt, serious. You need to listen to me very carefully. Okay, said Kathy, cautiously. The room, the room on the second floor. Don't use it as a bedroom. Kathy was stunned with such a sudden command. Um... Excuse me, Father, can I ask why? I don't really what... The... A static noise began merging with the priest's voice. You're breaking up, Father. I can't hear what you're saying. The static got louder, and now it was the only sound coming through. Kathy hung up the phone and stared at it, waiting for the priest to call back. Suddenly, arms went around her waist. She jumped. Hey, said George. 
George, I swear you'll be the death of me, said Cathy, pushing him away. You didn't come to bed last night? No, said George. I must have dropped off by the furnace. I've just took a very weird call from Father Pecoraro. It was a bad line, but he said something about not using the spare room. What? You must have misheard him. Why would a priest be interested in what we use rooms for? I know what he said, George. He said we shouldn't use it as a bedroom. George half smiled. So we've got priests calling with home improvement tips now. Cathy shook her head. Fine, don't believe me. She picked up her bedding and stomped out of the room. George laughed to himself and went to the kitchen to make a coffee. Missy was there, quietly drawing away at the table. George made his coffee, recalling the strange dream he had. The hooded figure. The way it made him feel. Angry. Filled with a type of vengeance. He was scared of the thoughts he had. Look, Daddy, said Missy, snapping him out of his thoughts. She handed him a drawing of what looked like an animal, surrounded by a child's attempt of a crowd of people. The lines through the back of the animal made it look as though it was injured or being attacked by the crowd. That's Jody, said Missy. Kathy had finished tucking in Missy's bedsheet, fluffing her pillows and smoothing them out at the top of the bed. She looked out of the window. They were really lucky to have this place, she thought. She started picturing the changes that she would make to the back garden. In the silence, she heard talking, coming from one of the bedrooms. She slowly walked across the landing and realised it was Christopher's voice. Probably playing with his toys, she thought, and, like most parents do at some point, she decided to eavesdrop. It was always a joy to hear the imagination of her children whizzing away. Stop crying! She heard him say. Please stop crying. I don't know how to help you. Concerned, Cathy cleared her throat to signify her presence and walked into the room. Christopher was stood up, staring at the closet. There were no toys out. Are, are you okay, honey? said Cathy. He keeps asking for help and he won't stop crying, Christopher said pointing at the closet. Something sank in Cathy's chest. There's no one there, baby. He's gone now. He ran when you came in, said Christopher as he walked past her, completely unfazed as if this was the most normal thing in the world. Cathy surveyed the now empty room. A shiver ran down her spine, causing her to shake on the spot. She shook herself together, took a deep breath and headed back to put the final pillow on Missy's bed. He's a kid, she thought. He's just lonely. Cathy froze. The fresh bedding was pulled off the bed. The mattress was hanging off the frame. George brushed his teeth 
and looked at himself in the mirror. He could see how he was changing. The beard, the straggly hair. He didn't want to admit it, but he knew it was this house. He could count on one hand the number of nights sleep he'd had in the last three weeks. Doors slamming of their own accord. Figures he would see in the periphery of his vision, just for them to disappear when he would turn to look at them. Was it all in his head? He and Kathy had been drifting apart. It felt like they were living two separate lives. Things needed to change. But at least tonight, he was tired. He knew sleep would come easy. And it did. Bang. George shot up like a rocket, diving out of bed to see what made such an unearthly noise. Wind and rain battered the house as if they were in the middle of a hurricane. He raced to the landing, just in time to see the front door, all 250 pounds of it, ripped straight off its hinges, hanging on by a single screw. He ran down the stairs to secure the door, fighting against the elements to do so. This chaos had awoken Kathy and the children, who all clung tightly to their mother's nightdress, hiding their eyes. Using furniture and blankets, George managed to secure the door to a passable degree. That should do it for tonight. I'll get it sorted first thing in the morning, he panted. How, how did the wind do that to the door? whispered Kathy. It's a storm, Kathy, George said. It's just a storm. But, but it was blown outwards, she replied. George looked over at the now-mended door. She was right. The wind should have blown the door in, not out. Let's just get some sleep, said George, corralling his family back upstairs. The following day, the locksmith arrived to fix the front door. And you're saying this was the wind? Asked the locksmith suspiciously. I know, it, it doesn't seem right. But that's what it looks like, said George. No, it looks like a gorilla ripped it out of its fittings, laughed the locksmith. George just sighed and half-heartedly smiled back. If you need me, I'll be in the kitchen. And he went off to make himself a coffee. Music. Very low, but there. Like a marching band. George froze on the cusp of the kitchen area, trying not to breathe so he could maximise his hearing. He looked through to the lounge to see if the TV had been left on. It was switched off. Music, growing louder. It seemed to be coming from all around him. Two sugars and cream. George spun round to find the locksmith staring at him. What? If you're making a coffee, I take two sugars and cream, he laughed. Oh, right, sure, George replied. The music had gone. Was it all in his head? Is this what a lack of sleep does to you, he thought? He'd put so many things out of his mind. Maybe the camel's back had truly broke and they'd all come flooding back. He spent the rest of the day in a daze chopping wood. He chopped so much wood his hands were blistered and raw. 
He didn't notice. He just wanted to tire himself out. That night, he checked the fixed front door was secure and got ready for bed. He climbed into bed quietly. Kathy was already asleep. He stared at her. She'd seemed disturbed recently, more so than usual. He stroked the hair from her face. He noticed a new wrinkle had formed on her forehead. This place was clearly getting to her too. George took his watch off and placed it on the bedside table. He turned back to kiss Kathy on the head, but he stopped. She was moving. No, she was vibrating. He couldn't believe his eyes. Her hair seemed to be turning white as he looked on open-mouthed. He stumbled back out of bed as he watched her face grow old and haggard. Then she rose up off the bed, floating. This thing was still asleep, it seemed. Then, from its floating base, it arched at the hips into a sitting position to face the mirror opposite on the wall. In quick succession, she opened her eyes, let out a terrifying scream and fell back onto the bed, sobbing. George was still motionless. It was only seeing that Kathy's face had returned to normal, that he was broken from his trance, and he ran over to hold her, in total shock and disbelief. At 7am the next day, January the 14th, 1976, the Lutzes hurriedly packed a few essentials and ran from 112 Ocean Avenue, Amateurville, lasting a total of 28 days. It's the events listed in that story which make the Amateurville horror the most well-known alleged true paranormal experience worldwide. The key theme that strikes during these alleged true paranormal experiences is what gives us the fear factor. Namely, if you're not safe in your family environment, when are you safe? Next week, we're going to take a look at some of the details of this story and find out just how well they hold up in the cold light of day. I look forward to joining you then. Don't forget, if you'd like to get in touch, email us at thedarkparanormal@hotmail.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash thedarkparanormal. I'll see you next time on The Dark Paranormal.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.